Good morning, Cross Point. Glad y'all are here this morning. If you're joining us online, we pray that you will be blessed by your time with us online, wherever you may be. We are glad to be here to worship the one true King this morning. I've, I've heard it said recently, actually it was last week, that we here at Cross Point pray a lot. And I'm not going to change that today. We're going to continue to do that. Um, if, if there's one thing that we should be known by is to be a praying church. The other thing is to be a loving church, and I see those things going hand in hand. So in just a few minutes, we're going to be going in to the Lord in prayer and let you know where we're going to be going. Um, first of all, we're going to be praying for another fellowship, Emmanuel Baptist Church here in town, whose pastor is Bobby Sparks and his wife Dottie. We're going to be praying for them. We've also been praying for an unreached people group for some time now. You have that up there? Ah, uh, when I saw that picture yesterday, when I was on the Joshua Project website, and I was looking for an unreached people group, that graphic hit me right between the eyes. It's the country of India. Every unreached people group is represented by a red dot. The country is nearly covered in red. Let me share just a few statistics with you that I found. The population of India is 1,387,131,000 people. The number of unreached people is 1,328,544,000. That's 95.6% of the population of India that's unreached. The largest religion of the country is Hindu. There are 2,379 distinct people groups in India, and of those, 2,142 people groups are unreached. And no evangelical movement in any of those groups right now. That's 90% of the people groups that are just untouched by the gospel. So I want us to pray this morning for the nation of India that God would reach this nation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're then going to be praying for the families here at Cross Point. We're going to be praying this morning for our time. We're going to be praying for our time this morning that the Holy Spirit would lead us into the truth of God's Word. So join me in prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning, we acknowledge your presence in this place. Father, we thank you for that. We glorify you for that. We worship you for that. We also know, Father, that you are here because of who you are and the love that you have for us, not because of who we are. And certainly not because we deserve your presence. But you love us, and your grace and mercy is poured out in our lives. We thank you for that. Father, I also want to lift up another fellowship this morning. Emmanuel Baptist Church, uh, Pastor Bobby Sparks. Father, I pray, first of all, that Bobby's and Dottie's relationship has grown and gotten even richer this week as he studied your word. As he prepares to stand and deliver, Father, I pray that uh, he will feel your strength through the Holy Spirit and be able to deliver an unashamed word from your, your truth. Father, I pray for the people there at Emmanuel Baptist that they would hear the truth of your word and would have an eternal impact on lives there and in the community and their surrounding area. Father, also this morning, lift up the country of India, 1.3 billion people 
And the majority of those have not heard of Jesus. They're unreached. Father, I pray that you would stir the hearts of people to go into that country. Those that are already in the country, Father, make their words more effective in reaching many. And Father, as we've seen in other, other places, for example, in Kazakhstan, one person shared the gospel with one other person. That person took that to their family, and it just grew. Father, we can expect the same thing to happen in India. And we pray that as they're still struggling with a very, very difficult phase in their COVID experience, the gospel of Jesus would be even more contagious in that country and would spread like wildfire and would change a people for your glory and your honor. Father, we trust you in that. Father, again, also pray for the families here at Cross Point that you would help us walk rightly, that you would help us look to you in the midst of where we might be. We may be in transition with jobs. We may be in transition with uh, maybe where, we're, where people are living. But Father, we can also be just in transition of things that are going on in our lives personally. Father, I pray that you would, would reach down and touch each family. Pour your mercy and grace over us as a people. Father, I had that, had that sense this morning as I was looking out at 7 o'clock at a, just a, at a hard downfall rain. And I pictured your grace that way. That it would just rain down on us. Father, then I pray for our time this morning as we continue in our worship and studying your word that the Holy Spirit would lead us into the truth of your word. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Now, we're going to be digging into the book of James again, and we're going to be doing that through this summer up until the second week in, in September, if God allows us to do that. It's all in his, in his hands, so we trust him, but that's the initial plan. So I'm going to ask you now to turn to James chapter 2. We're going to be looking in verses 18 through 26. Now, I'm also going to be reading a number of other verses. And if you're real quick on the draw and you like to turn to the verses, you, you can. I'm, I'm not going to try to stop you from that. But you can also benefit from our spot-on media team as they post the verses up here on the wall behind me. I'm not going to turn around and look. I'm just going to trust they're there. And if they're not there, don't tell me. I, I don't need to know that. Okay. Um, but we're going to be using a number of verses to support what we're going to be looking at, and it's the second part of what Neil introduced to us last week, in that faith without works is dead. Now, Neil told me Sunday morning last week, he said, Morris, I really appreciate you assigning me the three easiest verses in Scripture. <laughs> and then he laughed hard, you know, loud, and we were over in the other, other building. Nobody else was over there. Um, but that, that passage, verses 14 through 17, where James discusses this truth that faith without works is dead. We're going to be looking at that more this morning. Neil did a marvelous job at unpacking those truths. I will add some more revealed truth this morning. Now, something I learned a long time ago 
And I say a long time ago because I'm an old man. I've been around for a long time. Okay, so y'all can laugh. That's funny. Um, maybe not. <laughs> but I, I heard someone say that the best way to study the Word of God is beginning to end, book by book, verse by verse, word by word. An expository teaching and preaching. And I learned from that, that's my favorite way to study God's Word. And I believe that's the way God would prefer us to study because like in the book of James, it's not just a book. It was a letter written from James to a people. And it was intended to be read from beginning to end, to be able to glean the entire truth of everything that's said. Now, one of the other things that I really love about expository preaching, and it's like Neil said last week, he, he got three verses that some people would consider difficult. And if we just did spot preaching from here and here and parachuted in one spot and then next week parachuted in another, another spot, we could skip what some people would call difficult passages. But when we start with the beginning of a book and go straight through, you don't get to skip anything. And if you do skip something, it's very obvious. And if y'all ever see the elders skipping a passage, talk to us. We need to be held accountable in that also. But one of the other truths that I discovered, when you start at the beginning of a book and you glean the truth that's there verse by verse, word by word. When you get to that passage that some would consider difficult, then it's like, well, yeah, there's no other conclusion. It makes perfect sense. So we're going to the book of James. And if you are able, I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. James 2, beginning in verse 18. James says, but some will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers? And sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal to us the truth of this word. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll be seated. Now, verse 18 begins our passage this morning with a response to a hypothetical critic. This, this hypothetical critic that James is talking about, works versus faith, that works is a result of faith, 
And this is not. And this is further evidence of what Neil spoke of last week. That this letter is not a one-off deal for James. It's obvious from his writings and from the timing that he wrote this. He most likely had this same conversation with another, a number of people face to face. So that when he wrote this letter, this was fresh on his mind. He had been thinking this, he had been teaching this, and he laid it out. He had had encounters, I believe, with at least one critic in the past, probably more than that. So then he presents this truth for a very long time. He had been presenting it. So he'd encountered someone. And he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Trying to demonstrate that faith and works can and should be treated separately, not together. However, James responds to this statement that faith can be shown only through doing all kinds of works in one's life. James 2.18, the last part of that, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Here again, we examine the argument that Paul and James were opposed to one another by Paul saying, Salvation is apart from works, and James is saying you had to have works. And some people try to put them in contention with one another. But I'm going to point out this morning, as, as Neil did last week, that just ain't true. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now we could stop right there, as so many people do, and they build their argument. Okay, that works has nothing to do with our salvation. They forget verse 10. We're going to add that on this morning. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God's, God's not surprised by this whole works thing. He's the one that invented it. Okay. He's the one that put it into place beforehand. But let's talk about what this looks like. We have to let this passage in Ephesians expose that Paul and James are saying the same thing. They're not opposed to each other at all. Because if you read verse 10 of Ephesians 2, it's very clear that Paul said works are important. It's the same thing that James is saying. We are saved by grace through faith. That is an absolute. Please don't go out of this room today thinking that Morris said salvation isn't by, by grace through faith. It is. It is absolutely that way. Our salvation by grace through faith then leads us to good works. Okay. We don't we're not saved because of our good works, but we do good works because we're saved. It's very clear. So let's go on. We must consider this truth. There is absolutely nothing that I can do or you can do to earn your salvation. Okay. It's completely separate from us. We've heard said from this pulpit through the years that God is the active agent 
in everything in creation, including our lives, including our salvation. So it comes from God. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. There's no amount of works. There's no amount of money that you can give to different organizations that will earn you one little bitty piece of righteousness. It won't earn you anything. Isaiah points out, God points out through Isaiah, what just what he considers our, quote-unquote, good works to be. The things that we do of ourselves on our own. And I'm about to read from New American Standard Version because I really like the way they present this. Isaiah 64.6. I didn't tell the media team that, so it's going to be SV up there, so just bear with me. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. What God is pointing out in this passage is our best efforts that we generate on our own to God are like the filthiest garment you can imagine. Something that you don't want to touch or have anything to do with. And I'm not going to go into detail right now, but if you want to know what that is later, I will tell you. But I want you to think of the most disgusting, polluted garment that you can imagine. And then you have to pick it up and dispose of it. You know, and you, you go get a 10-foot shovel, <laughs> something, you know. That's what God considers our own self-generated works of righteousness that we think are works of righteousness. That's what he considers them. Back to Ephesians 2.9. Our salvation is not a result of works so that no one may boast. But instead, our salvation only comes from God. Only. Created, God, verse 10 very clearly says we are His workmanship. Everything that's in our lives comes from God. Everything that's accomplished through our lives comes from God. Everything that we do to honor Him comes from God. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what He calls us to do after our salvation. God cannot be any clearer than this, than this passage. When you take that entire passage in context, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, if you take just 8 and 9, which some people do, they build their case for works are not necessary. And there's whole movements going on across the globe right now in Christian environments that say, if you put anything else on me besides our, my salvation by grace through faith, then you're, you're hindering me. You're trying to handcuff me in things. Don't put anything else on me. Don't talk to me about works. So people can turn away from the church. They can turn away from fellowship with one another. They can turn away from gathering together to worship because they say, I don't need anything else. But to do that, they've, got to, they've just got to make verse 10 disappear. 
and they simply don't talk about it. But we're going to be look, we're looking at this in context, so verse 10 is absolute. We are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Verse 10 answers that question very clearly. When you include verse 10 as it should be, then the only conclusion that you can come to is this. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith so that we can do the works that God prepared for us. They're hand in hand. They go together. The only conclusion we can come to this critic that, that James came to with this critic, faith without works is dead. This is the key point to this passage in James. Okay, then. So how do we demonstrate our faith? What do we do? By our words, yes. Our, our words are important. But equally important are our actions. And I've heard people say in the past, again, I'm old, so I've heard this for a long time. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one. Now, what, what is that statement referring to? People see our lives. They see the way we walk. They see the things that we choose to do and the things that we choose not to do. They hear the things, they hear the words we choose to use and the words that we choose to not use. Our lives are a living example of who Jesus is. So we cannot, on one hand, say, yeah, I believe in Jesus and then live like the world. And there's no difference in, the, in our lives. God says, because we call on Jesus as our Lord, we then have the opportunity to be different. To have that sanctification worked out in our lives by the Holy Spirit. To help us change our lives and to model our behavior. We demonstrate our faith in the Lord daily. Hour by hour minute by minute, and we demonstrate our faith in our home more loudly, more times than not, than we do outside our home. If, if our lives look like Christ in the home, they're going to look like Christ outside the home. Because we tend to shut the door and then think, oh, I'll just relax. Well, we can relax, but we need to relax in Christ. That's what we need to do. That demonstrates a difference in our lives and a consistency that will make people go, hmm, what's, what's, what's different about you? What, what's different? Why, why do you do the things that you do? Why don't you do the things that the rest of the world says is okay? You know, and that's a great question because then you can look them in the eye and say, because... I love Jesus, and I want Jesus to be, to be depicted and shown in my life and my actions. You get to plant a seed, okay? Actions along with words are the strongest thing that we can do and are the absolute result of salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Let's look in verse 19. Here James says, and he's still talking to this hypothetical critic. 
you believe that God is one is a good thing. But here, James points out that belief alone is not sufficient. Belief alone does not save. And you're going, oh, well, wait, hang on. The word belief, in the way we typically use it, implies a singular one-time event. Okay. I, I went looking for a definition of belief, and I found this. Belief is an acceptance that a statement is true or that something exists. Okay. So belief has got to be more than that simple definition. One of the problems with the statement, I believe in God, is that if there is no evidence in the person's life that that belief, that that belief exists, that they're not doing the things that God had called them to do is a real problem. Because, see, you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You can believe that Jesus came to the earth as a baby, grew up, lived approximately three years in a ministry, was tried, was convicted, was crucified, he died. You can believe that he was buried. You can believe that three days later he was resurrected from the grave. You can believe that 40 days later, that 40 days that he spent appearing to over 500 believers, and then he ascended and he still is sitting at the right-hand side of the throne of God. You can believe all of those things and not be saved. Because Satan believes every one of those points. Satan witnessed Every one of those points. He knows exactly who Jesus is. The difference is, Satan cannot call Jesus Christ Lord. He can't. There is no salvation for Satan. So, just the fact that someone says, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Without works, according to James, according to God, is dead. But God, <laughs> two of those best words in Scripture, for those called by God, there is salvation. Let me say that one more time. Because of those called by God, there is salvation. Amen. Thank you. Romans ten thirteen says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, that's the difference between us here today and Satan. Satan cannot call Jesus Lord. If God calls us and the Holy Spirit is moving in our lives, then guess what? We get to call Jesus Christ Lord. Now, for a number of years in counseling, um, and when, when someone comes to me initially for counseling, I like to hear their story. I like to hear their faith story. But when I first started out, I would just ask them, are, are you a Christian? And they'd say, yeah. But then there would be no evidence. There would be nothing in their lives to indicate. You know, because I would say, well, when's the last time you read the Bible? Oh, I don't read the Bible. Do you go to church? No. So I've started, I started asking people this. Tell me your faith story. And if I don't hear them say that Jesus Christ is my Lord... I will press that. I, I, I want to hear that from them. 
And the majority of the time, people were, were like, well, yeah, I didn't know that's what you wanted me to say, but yes, Jesus Christ is my Lord. And them literally saying that affirms that. Okay. For me, that's a done deal. Now we just need to move on in, ter- in, in terms of what their life needs to, how they need to learn to make their life look like what they're saying. You see, belief pointed out clearly, or we see this belief pointed out clearly by our Lord Jesus as he was speaking to the crowd in John 6 when they asked him what they should be doing. Jesus, and it says in verse 28 of John 6, Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So he says you're to believe in Jesus. Now, we see this word believe in this passage in John 6, but it was pointed out earlier when, when Crosspoint went through the book of John for over eight years. You know, when Ben was first here, he taught through the book of John on Sunday mornings for about eight and a half years. When he got to this passage, he used the, the truth that this word believe has an active, ongoing principle. So it became believing. It's not just a one-time thing. In fact, some of you that have been around for a while may still have an ING t-shirt. Anybody here still have one of those? Oh, come on, there's got to be somebody besides me. <laughs> it became such a big deal that somebody decided, we're going to make some t-shirts. So everybody at Crosspoint at that time had an ING t-shirt, great big letters. And people would say, what does that mean? Well, we got to tell them. It's about believing. So all right, that didn't work. So anyway. <laughs> but y'all have heard it and you know it now you've got a picture of that in your mind and there may be some more t-shirts show up at some point and now please don't misunderstand this we must believe in God and in Jesus Christ we must call Jesus Christ our Lord that's how our salvation is accomplished And it's accomplished by the movement of God in our lives to bring us to that place to even be able to say that. God works in our lives to draw us to Jesus. Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. And the word can also be, also indicates a dragging. Because sometimes we dig our heels in and God drags us and we leave heel marks. Why? Because he loves us. And he wants us to be part of his kingdom. But as we believe in Jesus and we call him our Lord, God works in our lives and shows us things that due to our salvation, he now has things he calls us to do. We have an ongoing element of change in our lives to desire God. Because one of the things that salvation accomplishes, it helps us overcome one of the consequences of original sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was a basic anarchy that that developed in Adam and Eve. They wanted to be independent from God. What God calls us to do is to be dependent on Him. And our desire should be to desire God, to desire what He wants in our lives, to desire to please God by our walk, our words, our actions. 
in a word or works. That's what he desires. After James lays out the details of our works being a part of what we are called to be by God, he then provides evidence of this in the lives of two people. And like we see so often, the New Testament writers go back to the Hebrew Bible. There's two reasons they did that. One, that's all they had. (laughs) They didn't have the New Testament as we have written now. But they also went back because that was the Jewish, that was the Hebrew Bible. And they were basing their points that Jesus is the Messiah based upon things that they knew from the Old Testament, from their scripture, okay, from their word. So he goes back and he gives us two examples. He asks a very real question in verse 20. And again, this is of the critic, and this could be of us today. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And he gives us two examples. The first example is Abraham. In verses 21 through 24 of James 2, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We see that passage in Genesis 15, 6. It says, Then he, that is Abraham, believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is the passage that describes God's covenant with Abraham regarding the promise of a son, not Ishmael, that Abraham tried to make work, but Isaac. The faith that Abraham had in God's promise was counted or reckoned as to be righteousness in Abraham. It was not enough for Abraham to have faith and believe, but he then acted on that belief or faith as well. We see another time in Genesis 22, verse 16 through 18. And God said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies." In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham had faith in God. Due to that faith, he acted in accordance to what God had commanded him, even to the point that he was willing to put his son to death on the altar. Think about that. Abraham was acting in the covenant that God had promised him of having a child. And then God says, lay him out on this altar and take the knife, plunge it into his heart. I can't even imagine what that would be like. But Abraham was willing to do that. Why? Because he had faith in God. Now, I've I've heard several possible explanations 
But let me say this first. The scripture is not clear as to why Abraham did what he did. Other than he had faith in God. But some people would say, some commentators would say, well, you know, Abraham was believing that God would resurrect Isaac after he killed him. Or another commentator would say, well, he believed that God would provide another sacrifice instead of his son. Now, we don't know which one of those or even if one of those is correct. What we do know, absolutely, his actions were counted as righteousness and they were housed in the trust that he had in God. He didn't know what the outcome of the event was going to be, but he trusted God. That's the key. In James 2.24 it says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. They have to be married together. The second example we see in this from the Old Testament regarding the faith and works is in the life and actions of Rahab. James 2, 25 and 26 says, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now we find the story of Rahab's actions, which were a result of trusting God in Joshua 2. Joshua 2 verses 1 through 4 says, Then Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house harlot, whose name was Rahab, Rahab, and lodged there. And was told the king of Jericho, it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you and have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came into me, but I do not know where they are from. I did not know where they are from. She then hid the two spies from the king of Jericho, and she had a plan to help them escape. She then told them in verse 11 of Joshua 2, For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That's her testimony about who God is. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household. And give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, A life for yours if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. Now in this story it's revealed that Rahab had a genuine faith in God. And she gave not only lip service to that faith in God, she proved it by her actions, by literally putting her life in jeopardy. The result of her actions were that God spared Rahab and her entire family from the destruction that he had planned when Israel, or actually when God, broke down the walls of that city. And everyone in it was killed except Rahab and her family. Her faith in God led to 
good works. James is pointing out in this chapter, in chapter 2, that Rahab's actions were a result of her faith in God. A genuine, true, trusting faith. And it is one matter to claim some type of belief. James 2.14 says, Why, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Or it's another thing to have knowledge. James 2.19, you believe in that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But what is demonstrated by Abraham and Rahab is that they had a very real, true, saving faith in God. They were justified, and that's a term used by James, by trusting God in the face of very real, mortal Danger. For Abraham, it was the loss of the life of his son. For Rahab, it was the loss of her life by basically lying to the king. She put herself in jeopardy. Both were acts of faith. Now we have the advantage as a New Testament people, this side of the cross... And having the entire revealed word of God in the New Testament. We can see how God remembered both Abraham and Rahab in Hebrews. Hebrews 11 verse, verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Hebrews 11.31 By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies in peace. God remembers them and he has us today remember them as individuals who had a trusting, moving, living faith in God that's acted out by what we do and what we say. It illustrates that genuine faith is the one in the one true God Go hand in hand with good works. You can't have one without the other. James also points out, as does Paul, that works do not save. Hear that. Works do not save. It is our faith that through grace, God saves us. Then because of that, we can work. So what are we supposed to be doing? Mark 12, verse 28 through 31 one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked Jesus, what commandment is first, is foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus made it abundantly clear that we are to have, first of all, a love for God. Secondly, a love for our neighbors. So what does this look like? What does this love look like? We see it in John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, Jesus says, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus points out in these two passages, and others as well, that the love of God leads to us wanting to keep his commandments. 
We want to please God with our life. As I said earlier, our desire becomes to do the things that God wants us to do. In essence, we get our wanter fixed. Okay, you remember the little rubber bracelets? I started to pull one out, and I've still got one in my drawer. It's the WWJD bracelet that was so popular years ago. You know, and the bracelet was basically, it, it meant, what would Jesus do? And that became a very popular statement. But you know what I learned in that? We shouldn't be asking, what would Jesus do? We should be walking with God through Jesus in such a way that our wanter gets fixed and we can ask ourselves, what do I want to do? See, that's the more important question. Yeah, it's important to know what Jesus would do, but it needs to translate into our lives to the point that we can say, what do I want to do? My desire is for God. I want to please God in my actions. Not so that I would be saved, but because I'm saved. I want those actions to reflect the love of God. I want my actions to reflect that obedience. So we get our wonder fixed as we walk with Jesus, as we, as we participate in the things that Jesus participated in, in study, in prayer, in actions, in ministry to others. That, my dear people, is faith with works. They go hand in hand. It's so clear in Scripture. We can't deny that. But we also need to understand what that looks like. And hopefully that's what we've done this morning. We trust the Holy Spirit to lead us into that truth. And if there's something in me, if there's something in you, pray about it and let God just untangle any, any questions that you may have because he will do that. Now pray with me. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for showing us the truth of your word, that faith without works is dead. The fact is, if we have a genuine faith and trust in Jesus Christ, our lives are going to reflect that love and our obedience to you and as we minister to people around us. as we're careful with our words, if we're careful with our actions so that people would see the love of Jesus in our lives. Father, I do thank you for loving us. And I thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name I pray these things. Amen. Now as we transition to the Lord's Supper, I would ask you to take a moment to just spend a moment with God asking Him if your life is right with Him. If your life is right with one another. I just want you to bow your heads and I want you to just spend a moment listening to God. Father, help us be a people who follow You, who walk with You, and who demonstrate Jesus in our lives. If you are a believing follower of Jesus Christ this morning, I invite you to participate in this meal, this memorial meal that remembers what Jesus did on Passover night, the night, the night that he was arrested prior to his arrest. As you partake this meal, as you are ready, I want to ask you as the, as the music team begins playing, 
Come forward. We've got the elements prepared here on the table. Come forward and take the elements from the elder. Then take the entire element back with you to your seat. Then we'll participate together.